I'm Nicandro Yanachi, web strategist at the National Constitution Center. Welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we're on the road to debate the history and meaning of the Second Amendment. Did the Supreme Court get it right when it ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to own a gun? And does the Second Amendment also protect the right to carry a gun in public? We take you now to the Chicago Cultural Center in Chicago, Illinois. Christopher DeRocher, Director of Policy Development and Programming at the American Constitution Society, speaks first. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's debate. Resolved, the Second Amendment protects the individual's right to own and carry a gun. I'm Christopher DeRocher, Director of Policy Development and Programming with the uh, American Constitution Society. For those of you who don't know, uh, ACS is a national network of lawyers, law students, judges, and policymakers who believe that the law should be used as a force to improve the lives of all people. ACS works for, the positive, cha for positive change by shaping the debate on vitally important legal and constitutional issues, such as the Second Amendment. I'd like to take a moment to thank ACS's Chicago Lawyers Chapter and its co-chair, Dana, Dana Pinal, um, for all their help in planning and promoting this event. I'd also like to thank our partners, the Federalist Society and the National Constitution Center. This is the third in an ongoing series of debates that ACS has co-sponsored with the Federalist Society and the National Constitution Center. In March, we began the series in Washington, D.C., debating the Supreme Court's blockbuster Hobby Lobby case, which required an exemption for certain employers with relig re religious objections to the federal contraception mandate. In May, we traveled to Boston to debate whether Citizens United, the case that ended restrictions on independent political expenditures, was wrongly decided. Each was a lively, spirited, and good-natured debate that highlighted areas of legal and constitutional disagreement while avoiding the rancor and ad hominem attacks that too often pass for debate these days. Tonight's debate will be no different. Uh, before I introduce him, I'd also like to thank the moderator of tonight's debate, Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, who has ably served as the moderator for each of these debates. In addition to his work at the National Constitution Center, Jeff is a professor at the George Washington University Law School and a highly regarded journalist whose essays and commentaries have appeared in the New Republic, where he is the legal affairs editor, the New York Times Magazine, and in The New Yorker, where he has been a staff writer. He's the author of several books, most recently Constitution 3.0, Freedom and Technological Change. Please join me in welcoming tonight's debate moderator, Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you so much, Christopher. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the third National Constitution Center, Federalist Society, American Constitution Society, constitutional debate. Wow, I got them all out. The fact that I'm able to say the names of these three wonderful and inspiring organizations in one breath is a reminder of the significance of these debates, which are now traveling across America, and we think, like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, have the potential to transform constitutional discourse in America. Yeah. yeah. 
give it up for this inspiring vision. The National Constitution Center is a very special place. It is a private nonprofit on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, across from Independence Hall, with the most beautiful and inspiring constitutional views in America. But it has a charter from Congress to disseminate information about the US Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And we believe that in these polarized times, it is important for there to be a convening space that brings together the best arguments on all sides of the constitutional debates that transfix America so that you, the people, can make up your own mind and unite around our shared commitment to this great document of human freedom, the US Constitution. So one of the most important things that the Constitution Center has done is to create this beautiful Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board that is co-chaired by Leotis, Senior Vice President of the Federalist Society, and Carolyn Fredrickson, the President of the American Constitution Society. And this advisory board is sponsoring this series of traveling town hall debates that are spreading across America. But, it's, but that's not all. I always feel like a Ginsu knife salesman when I talk about this <laughs> phenomenal board. With this coalition is creating the finest interactive constitution on the web. And the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society are nominating scholars to write about every clause of the constitution, describing both what they agree about and what they disagree about. And this amazing tool, which I want you to check out at constitutioncenter.org, has just been adopted by the College Board, which is going to make it the centerpiece of the new AP history and government exams. And we really think it has the potential to transform constitutional education in America. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, that you have come for something significant, for something rare, for something important in these polarized times, the bringing together of these scholars nominated by these two great organizations with different philosophical perspectives for a civil debate that is not about policy matters but constitutional matters. And I really want you to do just one thing as we prepare ourselves for this uh, debate. Set aside your policy views. I am not interested. I'm going to ask you to vote before the debate and after the debate, and the winner is going to be the debater who has changed the most minds. Not who gets the most votes overall, but who's changed the most minds. But in casting your vote about the meaning of the Second Amendment, I don't want you to vote based on whether you think that restrictions on guns are a good or bad thing as a policy matter. I want you to cast your vote based on what you think that the Second Amendment protects or forbids as a constitutional matter. And there might be a difference between your conclusions about both of those views. So I'm going to begin, as I always do, by taking out my beautiful National Constitution Center pocket constitution with its thrilling and insightful introductory essay by yours truly and David Rubenstein. <laughs> and I'm just going to read the Second Amendment, because that's what we're debating uh, tonight. Here's what it, I guess I can do it if I hold it far off, but no, no, let's get it. Every, every word is important, so we're going to get it exactly right. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those are the words of the Second Amendment. And our motion today is resolved. The Second Amendment protects the individual's right to own and carry a gun. And here is the format of the debate, which we've used with great success in all of our traveling debates. Before the opening arguments, you, the audience, will vote on the motion. Each speaker will have 10 minutes to make an opening argument, followed by a five-minute rebuttal. I will then moderate a question and answer period for about a half hour, uh, which will include questions from me and then questions from you, the audience. So please write them down on note cards and be thinking about the questions you want to ask as we progress. 
We'll then conclude the debate with a three-minute closing statement from each speaker. Finally, you'll vote again on the motion, and we'll share the results. The winner of the debate will be the person who can change the most minds. Uh, so jot down your questions on the note cards. If you're on Twitter, follow us at ConstitutionCTR and use the hashtag America's Town Hall. Lastly, of course, uh, please silence your cell phones. And now it is my great honor to welcome our debaters, Michael O'Shea and Carl Bogus. Remember, these are the debaters who the great Federalist Society and National Constitution Center uh, Society leaders have nominated to uh, represent their sides. Michael O'Shea is professor at the Oklahoma University School of Law and a nationally recognized Oklahoma City, uh, School, Oklahoma City University School of Law and a nationally recognized expert on firearms law and the Second Amendment. He is co-author of Firearms Law and the Second Amendment, Regulation, Rights, and Policy, uh, and he served as a law clerk to Chief Judge Danny Boggs of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and to Judge John Gibson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. We're also joined by Carl Bogus. He is a professor of law at the Roger Williams University School of Law. He is the author of William F. Buckley and the Rise of American Conservatism, and also Why Lawsuits Are Good for America, Disciplined Democracy, Big Business, and the Common Law. His commentaries have appeared in many publications, including USA Today, the LA Times, and on uh, CNN. Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to provide a very brief and entirely balanced summary of the facts, basically, of the cases um, that are, we're going to be debating, as well as the holdings of the Supreme Court. Uh, the first case, uh, the Heller case, uh, arose out of Washington, D.C., where uh, six residents filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of a local law that restricted D.C. residents from owning handguns except by active and retired law enforcement. D.C. and Chicago, in both of these cases, were the only cities in the country that banned residents from owning handguns in the home. Uh, district law also required that any rifles and shotguns kept in a home be unlocked and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock. In a 5-4 to four decision written by Justice Antonin Scalia, in the Heller case, the Supreme Court held that the district's ban on handgun possession in the home violates the Second Amendment. Uh, and in the companion case, which was uh, called McDonald, the court heard a challenge to Chicago's gun registration law, which was brought by three Chicago residents. The ordinance required that all firearms in the city be registered. Um, and the court, in a plurality opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, held that the Second Amendment right is fully applicable to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, and Chicago's regulation was unconstitutional. So those are our two decisions, one striking down the federal uh, ban in D.C., the other applying the Second Amendment to the states in Chicago. We have the makings of a rich and important constitutional debate, so let us get to it. Uh, I, um, it's now my great honor to introduce the first of our debaters who will make a 10-minute opening statement, and that will be uh, Michael O'Shea, and it's my pleasure to call on him now. Very good. Professor O'Shea. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks to the ACS and the Federalist Society and the National Constitution Center for the honor of appearing in this beautiful venue. Thanks to Professor Bogus for participating. 
The U.S. Supreme Court's holdings in Heller and McDonald marked a... Michael, yeah. I'm so sorry to do this. I'm, I'm ruining your moment, but I we forgot to vote. Is that not the case? That Nicole, is true. Yeah, yeah. We did forget yeah. to vote. Yes. That is true. The voting is important, and you're like, as of the Supreme Court, you'll have full time to start again. It was a beautiful beginning, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to interrupt it so that we can vote. I'm so sorry. It's very, very important to vote. So uh, now I have to read the instructions about how we vote. You all have your clickers in front of you. And um, using your device, this is the first vote, please answer the following question. Do you agree with the resolution, the Second Amendment protects the individual's right to own and carry a gun? If you support the resolution, use the arrow keys to highlight yes. If you oppose the resolution, use the arrow keys to highlight no, and then hit send. Once you've hit send, your answer will be displayed back to you. That means your response has been recorded. Thank you for casting your votes. Let's just give the audience one moment to do that. I think we are well voted. And now, once again, it is my great pleasure to introduce <laughs> Michael O'Shea, who will give his opening statement. Thank Professor you very O'Shea. much. I incorporate by reference my <laughs> Uh, the Supreme Court's holdings in Heller and McDonald marked a return um, by recognizing a fundamental individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. The Heller and McDonald decisions marked a return to the main line of American understanding of the Second Amendment since the founding. Uh, it, they followed a period beginning in the 20th century where that understanding had been abandoned by a significant portion of the American elite, uh, including a number of federal judges, though most of the American people continued to hold to the traditional view that the Second Amendment secured uh, a personal right to possess arms and use them for legitimate purposes. Uh, the Second Amendment was a modified and enlarged descendant of the English right to arms in the 1689 English Declaration of Right. Uh, the English right, which followed, uh, uh, was enacted by Parliament to accompany the new monarchy of William and Mary and the rejection of the Stuart monarchy and the Glorious Revolution. Uh, the Declaration of Right contained an assertion of fundamental liberties that the English believed that the Stuart kings had violated and it included a right to arms provision which said, the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. Um, William Blackstone's commentaries on the common law of England in the 1760s showed where the understanding of that right was in the 18th century. Blackstone described it as an auxiliary right of the subject, which is to say a right whose purpose was to protect other rights such as life, liberty, and property. And he described it as a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural rights of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. The Second Amendment ended up in the United States Constitution as part of a response by the proponents of the new Constitution to anti-federalist concerns, concerns uh, about by Americans who were skeptical of the new Constitution about one of its most striking and important features, the new Constitution 
as a deliberate part of its design, greatly expanded the military powers of the new federal government. That was the principal weakness that many identified with the old Articles of Confederation. And not only did the new Constitution um, create authority for a standing army, uh, which was very controversial in the sort of civic libertarian thought of the time, but it gave the federal government searching powers, broad powers over the militia. Um, the federal government had expressed authority to organize the militia, to arm the militia, to discipline the militia, to call it into federal service for various purposes and, and make the president the commander in chief of the militia when it did so. All the states were left with was the authority to appoint the officers and to train the militia according to Congress's instruction. This was controversial. At the time, the states maintained the idea of a truly popular militia uh, that would consist of the whole people. Um, and that was one of the objections mounted at the ratification conventions. And many of the messages ratifying the new, convention, the new constitution contained also calls for it to be amended to protect various liberties or to address various concerns. Um, how did the, second, the Constitution's framers, like James Madison, respond to this concern. They did not take back the crucial militia powers of the federal government in Article I and II. They did something else. They recognized a right of the individual citizens who were the basis of the militia not to be disarmed. Throughout the drafting process, there were attempts made to introduce language such as uh, language that would have said that the people had the right to keep and bear arms for the common defense or that a well-regulated militia trained to arms was the security of a free state, and they were consistently rejected by the Federalist-controlled Congress. What was being offered was something different. So what's the relationship between the exhortatory language about the right to arms in the preface, about the militia in the preface, and then the recognition of a right to arms on the analogy of the English right? Americans in the decades following ratification had no trouble grasping how this worked. Uh, St. George Tucker was the leading American constitutional commentator of the first uh, quarter of the 19th century. Uh, Virginia Supreme Court judge, U.S. federal judge, law professor, author of the first treatise on the U.S. Constitution. And he wrote of the Second Amendment, this may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right of self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. He quickly turned to the game laws of Stuart England, which were laws banning the possession of guns. They were confiscating guns under the pretext of protecting the king's game. He said, in England, the people have been disarmed generally under the specious pretext of preserving the game. Their Bill of Rights seems at first to counteract this policy, but it is confined to Protestants, and Tucker talked about the other limitations, so that not one man in 500 can keep a gun in his house without being subject to a penalty. The right to keep arms, the right to keep a gun in one's house. The Georgia Supreme Court in 1846 struck down a recently enacted state law that banned handguns and banned handgun carrying, saying that it was a violation of the Second Amendment, and it, concluded its opinion with this peroration about the relationship between the two clauses of the Second Amendment. The right of the whole people, old and young, men, women, and boys, and not militia only, to keep and bear arms of every description, and not such merely as are used by the militia, shall not be infringed, curtailed, or broken in upon in the smallest degree. 
and all this for the important end to be attained, the rearing up and qualifying a well-regulated militia so vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Um, Thomas Cooley, in 1880, the leading constitutional scholar of the second half of the 19th century, reached the same conclusion about the Second Amendment, and the idea was by assuring that the, the founding era militia's arms came from its members. They had supplied privately, privately possessed arms, and that was how the militia got its weapons. And by assuring that the people could retain arms and could use them for legitimate purposes that would develop skill and familiarity with them, None of the federal government's regulatory powers over the militia were taken away, but there would always be a residuum of an armed and capable population that could serve as a militia and could even serve as a counterweight to federal tyranny, uh, as Madison envisioned in, in Federalist Number 46. Consistent with this, there's a steady run of cases in the 19th century recognizing the individual character of the right to arms under the federal constitution, but also under state constitutions construed as protecting similar guarantees. Um, there were also many of these decisions reached the view that a degree of regulation of the exercise of the right was constitutional, and the chief example was the legislature could, regu could regulate the mode of bearing arms. And so social norms were different in the 19th century. 19th century courts typically viewed concealed carry of, of weapons as a disreputable practice uh, that, was, that was suggested bad intentions, and honest citizens carried arms openly. Um, but the principle that the, the legislature can regulate the mode of carrying arms but not prohibit it uh, stands out clear. I dwell on this because if there were a difficulty about construing the relationship between the two clauses, we would have expected the people who are closest to the founding to have, have responded to that difficulty, and they didn't. They recognized what the Federalists had done was not to take back what they viewed as some of the most crucial features of the Constitution, but to give a corollary or related protection that was not the same, the recognition of a personal right to arms, uh, which would serve the militia by promoting arms ownership and readiness. Uh, it is a polemical exaggeration, but it serves a point to say that I'm convinced that the contrary government-centric view, particularly of Justice Stevens's dissent in the Heller case, uh, while it reflected a number of lower federal court opinions leading up to the Heller decision, which were rejected by the Heller majority, would not have been possible if the early American sources, the 19th century sources, had not uh, fallen into obscurity. The, to, to get there, you have to pretend, you have to think the 19th century never happened. Um, the, what's my time? One minute. Okay, one minute. So much for the founding era. Any supporter of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent Obergefell decision uh, recognizing a 14th Amendment right to same-sex marriage would have to admit that historical practice is not the only thing that matters. And if we turn to the 20th century and to today, over a dozen state constitutions, quite a bit more than that in fact, have been revised since the start of the 20th century and their right to arms provision consistently in the direction of clarifying the individual nature, clarifying the importance of self-defense. Um, over 40 states representing a supermajority of the population uh, 
recognize a general right to bear arms either through shall issue concealed carry, as recently came to your state with a little help from the courts, or uh, a minority of states even allow permitless carry. If, if you're lawfully able to possess a firearm, you can carry it for self-defense without, um, without a permit. There are over 10 million active uh, concealed carry permits issued by states, and that doesn't even include the ones that are um, the citizens of states where you don't have to have a permit to carry. If you want to look at constitutional practices, living practices that reflect the idea of the right to bear arms in the 21st century, shall issue concealed carry reflects it. It is arguably the most, one of the most successful regulatory programs of the last 30 years. Thank you so much, Professor O'Shea. And a rebuttal from Professor Bogus. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be here with you and uh, with Michael O'Shea and Jeffrey Rosen. Let me tell you a story. This will be one of the most dramatic stories uh, in the history of the formation of the United States. And I'll be surprised if you've heard it before. I'm going to take you back to Richmond, Virginia, June of 1788. The Constitution, the previous summer, uh, had been proposed in Philadelphia. In order for it to be adopted and for the United States to come into being, uh, it had to be ratified by nine of the 13 states. It had been ratified by eight. But there were four states that were almost certainly not going to ratify it. And the last hope was Virginia. It looked like if Virginia did not ratify the Constitution, it would not come into being. And the event that I'm going to tell you about in uh, June of, of 1788 is the ratifying convention in Richmond. I mean, it's a, it was a showdown made for Hollywood. Um, arguing for ratification, representing the Federalists, the principal drafts person of the Constitution, James Madison. Representing the Anti-Federalists, arguing against ratification, the brain trust of the anti-federalists, George Mason, and Patrick Henry, who was considered um, America's greatest orator. They had to change the venue uh, for this because so many people showed up, they had to move it to whatever was then the Richmond analog to the Superdome. And, um, let me give you a little background about two things before I take you to what they said there. One has to do with the militia. So there had been a, um, a debate in Philadelphia about the, what the militia should be. Should it be a universal militia uh, composed of everybody? Should it be a select militia, highly trained? Um, 
the founders decided to leave that up to Congress. They wrote in Article 1, Section 8 that uh, Congress would organize the militia. So they would define what the militia would be. But let me tell you something about the militia. It had been thoroughly, in the eyes of these founders, discredited in the Revolutionary War. Despite initial um, uh, you know, victories at uh, Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill, it was a flop. And uh, Washington constantly wrote to the Const Constitutional, um, the Continental Congress and told them, we have to have a professional army. Uh, the militia is shooting each other in uh, camps, they're leaving, they're drunk, they're completely undisciplined. And um, uh, it was only after a professional army was raised that uh, America had a chance. The second thing I want to tell you is what the racial composition was at the time. So Virginia was 44% black, by which I mean 44% slave. In eastern Virginia, where Richmond was, it was a majority black population. And um, everybody lived in constant fear of slave revolt, constant fear of slave revolt. The defense against slave revolt was the militia. That's what it was. It was so critical that in the main, in the main, the South refused to commit her militia to the war against the British because if the militia left, they were afraid that there would be slave insurrections. So the Anti-Federalists raised the following argument. They said, uh, James Madison, James, you claim, and we don't dispute it, that the Constitution does not give the federal government the power to um, end slavery. They want to. The eastern states, by which they meant the northern states, uh, are increasingly opposed to slavery. They find it obnoxious. And they will eventually be a majority. Um, and you have deprived them of the, uh, the authority uh, to eliminate uh, slavery. There was a slave compromise in the um, kind of a tacit slave compromise in the Constitution. But, Mason and Henry said, you have given them the tool to undermine slavery. You have given Congress the exclusive power to arm the militia. Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have the power to arm the militia, organize the militia, arm the militia, and provide discipline for the militia. The states had the power to appoint officers and train the militia in accordance with the discipline established by Congress. And so they raised, they raised many other arguments, by the way, against ratification, but I'm just centering on this. The fear of a disarmed militia and slave revolt. And they raised all kinds of things. They said, um, uh, you know, only Congress can call forth the militia if there's an insurrection. The states only get to call forth the militia if there's an invasion. They said, um, you know, what happens if Congress marches the militia, takes Georgia's militia and marches it up to New, uh, to New Hampshire? Everybody understood what happens. There's no militia in Georgia. The slaves will revolt. 
Um, Mason said, the militia may be destroyed by that very method which has been practiced in other parts of the world before, that is, rendering them useless by disarming them under various pretenses Congress may neglect to provide for arming and disciplining the militia. The state government can't do it, for Congress has the exclusive right to do it. And Madison said, oh, no, 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 Th that's a concurrent right. And he was ridiculed by Mason. He was ridiculed actually by Henry, who, 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 who continued this. And he said, really? Really? So when you said Congress has the authority to organize the militia, does that mean that's concurrent? Congress has the authority to arm the militia? You say that's concurrent? We get to appoint the officers, I guess that's concurrent? Well, here's how it turned out, as you know. The Federalists won by a vote of 88 to 80. Very thin majority. Very thin majority. Um, I have, what, a minute left? Two minutes, great. Okay. <laughs> then things got interesting. Um, Henry made sure that Madison did not get into the Senate and had to run uh, for Congress. Um, and they wanted to end his political career. They gerrymandered his district, and they got the rising star of the anti-federalists, James Monroe, to run against them. And the argument was, Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights, you've been against the Bill of Rights. And Madison said, you know, I was against the Bill of Rights before we ratified the Constitution. But now we've got a Constitution, I'm in favor of a Bill of Rights. And he won the election, and he went off to Congress. He went off to Congress, by the way. The anti-federalists were no longer interested in a Bill of Rights, particularly. That had been an argument against ratification. But Madison had committed himself. Madison had committed himself. And he sat down, I believe, and I suggest, to cure the problem that Mason and Henry told him in Richmond had been the case. That um, what happens if Congress disarms the militia? Now, he was intent. Nothing in the Bill of Rights would contradict anything in the main body of the Constitution. So he wasn't going to say this, he wasn't going to say the states can arm the militia. And by the way, the militia was generally armed in the following way, even before the Revolutionary War. The states passed statutes that said you've got to bring your own weapons to militia duty. Now listen to the words of the Second Amendment again. And then please sum up. Okay, I'm up. Uh, you can, I can do it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to carry and bear arms shall not be infringed. Thank you so much, Professor Bogus. A five-minute response from Professor O'Shea. So when the first point to note is that what came out of all this was not additional control over the militia. It was a right to bear arms. And the call for a federal right to arms came from the anti-federalists in Quaker, Pennsylvania. It came from New York. It came from New Hampshire. 
uh, Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, that representative of the planter class, sought to include in Massachusetts's ratification message a call for the right of the peaceable citizens to keep their own arms. Uh, at the time of the ratification debates, the state constitutions of Pennsylvania and Vermont expressly affirmed the right of the people to bear arms for their defense. Uh, when you look at um, picking up the, the same thread that I, I gather underlies Professor Bogus's remarks, when you begin to study some of the, the great constitutional commentators um, who spoke about the idea of the citizen militia and particularly about the, the individual liberty, uh, the right to bear arms, what you are often struck by is the threat of abolitionism. Uh, the constitutional commentator who is closest to the founding and who most fully matches every feature of the right that the US Supreme Court adopted in Heller is Tucker, is St. George Tucker of Virginia. And he published his treatise on the right to bear, uh, his treatise on the Constitution, which includes his analysis of the, the right to bear arms in 1803 as part of his commentary, his edition of Blackstone's Commentaries, was the most common legal textbook uh, in early America. A few years before, his, uh, another of his major publications was a treatise calling for abolition in Virginia in 1796. Uh, Thomas Cooley uh, in the 1880s, who could not have been clear about the idea of a popular militia, the ideal of a popular militia of an armed populace as a guarantee of liberty, was the founder in the 1840s of the Free State Party in his home state, which was a single-issue abolition party. Um, the even if you want to talk about federal powers over the militia. Um, the most eloquent of the anti-federalists by general acclaim is the, the federal farmer, who is actually well known enough that poli-sci students and government students often read him. He was a pseudonymous uh, anti-federalist critic of the new constitution, particularly critical of the idea of a select militia, of a narrow militia that didn't represent the whole people and thus could be a tool of oppression. Scholars aren't completely certain who the anonymous author of The Federal Farmer was, but the leading candidate these days is Melanchthon Smith, who was a New York statesman who was the founder of a New York anti-slavery society. I think the, the point is sufficiently clear. Um, the thing that I find interesting is there actually is a line of authority in the 19th century. It was definitely in the minority, in um, the first half of the century and it became more prominent in the second half lasting until a little after the turn of the century that was more skeptical about the role of private self-defense in the Constitution. It said many of the same sorts of things that you will hear critics of the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence in Heller say today that the concern was political power and particularly about ensuring a means of resistance in the people against a potentially overbearing government and not so much on private self-defense. And the remarkable thing is in the 19th century, even the courts that took this view were very clear that the right to keep arms in the Second Amendment and in their state constitution was a right to own guns. And in fact, that line of thinking leads in interesting directions because those courts made clear that in their view, the right, the, the arms protected by the Second Amendment were not um, 
all weapons in common use or that are commonly used for legitimate purposes, it was military weapons. And that there was, in the words of one influential Tennessee court, an unqualified right to keep arms that were the ordinary military equipment. Anyone who thinks the Supreme Court's Heller decision is some sort of Second Amendment absolutism, that it doesn't include pragmatic considerations for um, matters today, should note that they didn't follow that line. They followed the private purposes self-defense line um, that comes from the founding. So there's a little bit of be careful what you wish for. Thank you so much, Professor O'Shea. Uh, final uh, response from Professor Bogus. five minutes. Uh, Professor O'Shea has quite properly um, emphasized the importance of the English Bill of Rights because the American founders were not writing on a blank slate when it came to this particular right. So let me tell you about that right. Um, by the way, the English Bill of Rights is almost in interesting. It was just about a almost evenly one century uh, prior to this. And the background was this. James II, King of England, turned out to the horror of Parliament and the English people to be a secret Catholic. And he announced he was a Catholic. And uh, this was no small matter. Uh, Protestants feared Catholics um, a great deal. Uh, there were very few Catholics in England, but they thought they didn't know how many. They thought there were lots of Catholics. They were loyal to the Pope, and they were dangerous. Everything was fine until um, James had a son, and it looked like uh, the, the, his line would continue. And so Parliament wrote a nice little letter uh, to William of Orange, um, whose wife um, had royal blood, inviting him, uh, royal English blood, uh, stadholder of Holland, uh, inviting him to invade England. And uh, William of Orange did invade England, and uh, James fled, uh, recognizing that everybody was against them. Uh, the, the Catholic population was 10% or less, and he fled. And um, William of Orange sat down and negotiated a Bill of Rights with Parliament. Now, at the time that they were doing this, one of the things James had done was he started to uh, fire Protestant officers and appoint Catholic officers. And uh, there was a fear that they, the Catholics were going to be armed and in control of England, and the Protestants wouldn't be. At the time that, that Parliament was negotiating with uh, William of Orange, under what terms will we make you king, the mayor of London was going around disarming Catholics, making sure Catholics did not have arms. The issue was, who got to decide who got to be armed? The king or parliament? Parliament said, we decide who gets to be armed. And we have passed laws for a couple of hundred years about this.
Here is the English Bill of Rights that Professor Shea uh, read to you earlier. Let me read it again. That the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their condition. The suitable to their condition, by the way, is Parliament always conditioned gun ownership on land owning. They didn't want flotsam and jetsam to be armed. That was dangerous. Suitable to their condition and as allowed by law, as allowed by law, Parliament made the law. This wasn't a, you have a right to own guns notwithstanding what Parliament says. This was Parliament decides. Catholics, we don't care. But for Protestants, Parliament decides who gets to have guns and when. It was a separation of powers problem. And so was the Second Amendment. It was a federalism problem. Who gets to decide whether about arming the militia? Congress exclusively? Or do the states have a say for a armed militia that they can rely on for their own security. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank our debaters for their initial statements. Thank you. I will now ask each of them questions for about 10 minutes, and then we'll invite your questions. So please start writing them on note cards, which will be collected by our superb constitutional tabulators who will bring them up, and I will <laughs> ask them for the rest of the period. Um, Professor O'Shea, I want to jump uh, right in. One of the many spectacular features of the new National Constitution Center, Federalist Society, American Constitution Society, Interactive Constitution, is that it allows you at constitutioncenter.org to, <laughs> to click on any provision of the Bill of Rights and see its historic antecedents in the revolutionary era. So you can actually look at those state constitutions that you referred to, as well as to the um, uh, all of which uh, Madison relied on in drafting the Second Amendment, and then trace the evolution of his language through Congress to the final version. And without counting all of them up, I think it's fair to say that although a minority of them, like Pennsylvania, do explicitly ex uh, protect an individual right to bear arms, Pennsylvania says that the people have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and for purposes of killing game, the majority of the state constitutions on which Madison relied um, like Virginia's, which uh, Professor Bogus described, are more concerned about the federal government completely disarming the state militia. Does it matter that more states were concerned about disarming the militia than about protecting the individual right to keep and bear arms? I would say, um, again, what the, the states that you're referring to that didn't have uh, state constitutional right to arms provisions um, didn't have them. There was something else in there, uh, typically recitations about the dangers of a standing army and the militia. Um, the Second Amendment, the, the Federalist's choice was to include a right to arms and a hortatory provision. And again, the idea of the popular militia and the fact that the militia brought their own arms is, is the analytical connection that makes sense of the Second Amendment as an utterance. The, the Federalists knew that this was a sticking point. There was a lot of discomfort about the federal government's powers over the militia, but they weren't budging 
So, and this is something that's commonly argued about all the Bill of Rights, uh, the Federalists were perfectly happy to agree to the Bill of Rights because they were things they didn't want to do anyway. Um, and one of them was disarm the American people. That was uh, not even on the, on, the, on the horizon as a potential thing that, that the federal government would be interested in doing at the time. So the choice was to include a right to arms provision. Some of the right to arms provisions in some of the states at the founding era did have the language about the common defense. And the remarkable thing is even those throughout the 19th century were interpreted to protect individual ownership. The idea was it's for the common defense, but it's a right of the people to keep and bear arms. And that means uh, personal possession and in many cases use of uh, common arms. So the Second Amendment um, makes sense in the context of the time. We're going to say something nice about militias, uh, and then we're going to do something that is a corollary and can be seen to, you know, in the, in the views of the time, to promote a well-regulated militia. We're going to have a widespread um, armed populace. Uh, and that's the first step to having a militia, as it was, as it was practiced at the time. But the preface is there to make that exhortation, but not to change Article 1 and 2. Professor Bogus, uh, by the time of the framing of the 14th Amendment, which is the provision at issue in the McDonald case, there was more individual rights talk. And indeed, many abolitionists feared that southern states would completely disarm enslaved people and not allow them to defend themselves against marauding mobs. As a result, some scholars, even some liberal scholars, have argued that by the time of the framing of the 14th Amendment, the uh, Second Amendment had morphed into more of an individual rights protection. What do you make of that argument? It's not entirely wrong. And um, there was, during uh, Reconstruction, an enormous uh, fear about um, uh, what armed whites were doing to um, unarmed blacks in the South. And so that's true. Uh, but I think too much is made in trying to figure out what the framers of the Second Amendment meant, the gist of what they meant. I think too much is made of post-1791 history. And uh, um, that history is, is very important for what they meant by the 14th Amendment. And, uh, but I'm not so sure it is at all relevant to what the framers of the Second Amendment uh, meant. And I'm sure the audience has noticed that uh, Professor O'Shea has, on quite a few times, drifted into 19th century um, statements. So I think it's very important in terms of we're trying to figure out what the framers and ratifiers of the Second Amendment meant to stick to that era and that time. Yes, popular, popular views about all kinds of things have changed over time. Uh, and there's a great argument to be made about this concern about individual rights in the 14th Amendment. But um, 
I'll say this. In Congress at the time, Congress suspended the militia in the South during Reconstruction. They suspended the militia in the South. And I forgot who it was, stood up on the floor of Congress and said, that violates the Second Amendment because it is the state's right to have an armed militia that the Second Amendment is about. So there have been different views about this over a period of time, but this idea that the Second Amendment is in essence about the right of the state to have an armed militia has had a long, long legacy. And by the way, until 1960, there was not a single law review article that had been written about the Second Amendment, not one that took an individual rights position. The view was unanimous until 1960 that the Second Amendment, among legal scholars writing law review articles, that the Second Amendment grants the people a collective right, that is a right to keep and bear arms within the government organized and regulated militia only. Professor O'Shea, I've just heard some fighting words. Professor, Bo <laughs> <laughs> Professor Bogus has accused you of being a living constitutionalist. <laughs> he well, says that regardless of what people thought during the Reconstruction era, during the time of the framing, they were focused on state militias. And in his writings, <laughs> Professor Bogus has also said that at the time of the framing, the founders rejected what he calls insurrectionism, the idea that the people could go to war against their armed government. He notes that uh, Madison and the other framers were concerned about Shays' Rebellion and mobs where uh, d uh, debtors would uh, rebel against creditors. And therefore, he says the notion that there was an individual right to commit revolution against the government at the time of the framing is not historically supported. So a lot of stuff there. Um, in no particular order, uh, one of the only directly contemporary statements about the meaning of the Second Amendment that we have <clears throat> is by Madison's ally and correspondent, Tench Cox, who was a, a Federalist official at the time of the founding. And he published just a few days after the introduction of the Second Amendment uh, in, the, in the Federal Gazette and Philadelphia Evening Post in 1789, the following description of the Second Amendment. As, and it actually speaks to both two of the, the points that you asked about, as I think will become clear. As civil rulers not having their duty to the people duly before them may attempt to tyrannize, and as the military forces which must be occasionally raised to defend our country might pervert their power to the injury of their fellow citizens, the people are confirmed by the next article in their right to keep and bear their private arms. Um, as for what Congress thought about the uh, right to bear arms in the Reconstruction era, the second Freedmen's Bureau Act, which was passed by in 1866, which was an ambitious part of Reconstruction to rehabilitate the freedmen and get them in possession of their civil liberties as Americans, uh, was passed by a veto-proof majority of Congress because it was vetoed the first time around by President Johnson. And one of its provisions said that in every state or district where the, the rebellion had been occurring, um, the right to have full and equal benefits of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens of such state or district without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery. 
Thanks so much for that. These are phenomenal questions from the audience, which I'll ask in a moment, but just one last question from me to Professor Bogus. Uh, in the same spirit, um, why aren't you, Professor Bogus, and the liberal justices in the McDonald case bad originalists? Because if you've conceded that by the time of the framing, the right was considered to be an individual right or privilege or immunity of citizenship, as plenty of Reconstruction framers said during the debates over Reconstruction, why wouldn't it incorporate against the states through the Privileges and Immunities Clause, and why would it be different than any other of the individual rights recognized at the time? Well, in terms of incorporation, the, the question is, um, the way Cardozo, I think, put it, is, is, it um, is the particular right, since not all rights are incorporated, is the particular right the essence of ordered liberty? And I just have to say that there, if there is any idea that is more dangerous to ordered liberty, it is this insurrectionist idea that the people have a right to keep and bear arms so that they may go to war against their government should they consider it to be tyrannical. So, um, I don't know. I, you know, the, here's the problem. Here's the key problem. There's a lot of history on both sides. I think my side has the winning historical perspective. I do. I do. I do. I think, I, I think it does. But the question is, is this to be taken away from the, dem the question about who should be armed, under what circumstances, what should be regulated, what shouldn't be regulated? Should that be part of the democratic process? or proclaimed by judges. Because let's get one thing straight about Heller and McDonald both. We had nine justices who never considered the Second Amendment before Heller. Then Professor O'Shea and his army and I and my army, I mean, we were soldiers in these armies, came up and said, look at all this history. Look at all this history. And the nine of them looked at all of the history. They rolled their sleeves up, history they'd never seen before. And they divided 5-4 along perfectly ideological lines. And then two years later, should this right be incorporated against the states? A completely separate question, one that none of those justices had ever handled before because there hadn't been another right that had been incorporated against the states for, I don't know, more than half a century, I think. So they, 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 they look at the second question, and they divide along perfectly ideological lines again, five to four. Well, when that happens, maybe the court ought to realize that it's ideology, and I don't mean this in a nefarious way, it's ideology that's driving their decisions. And if that's the case, they ought to step out of it and say, we're going to let the democratic process take over. 
we are not going to start declaring and legislating there is this right that we've never recognized before and we're going to start doing details of it. You have a right to have a handgun in a home. Where's that, where's that in the Second Amendment? Wonderful. Well, we now have a series of superb questions from the audience. Uh, several of them focus on what regulations are permitted by the Second Amendment, regardless of whether you consider it an individual or collective mm -hmm. right. Uh, one of our great audience members asks, if the Second Amendment is not absolute, what are the constitutional li limitations? Another asks, does the right to bear arms give you the right to bear arms, ammo, uh, ballistic missiles, drones, or other modern weaponry? Uh, Professor O'Shea, what, what, if any, regulations do you believe that the Second Amendment permits? Right. I can only talk about a few examples. Um, it would be hard to compass what sorts of regulations of the First Amendment are permissible uh, in a short answer. Uh, some are easy because there is a historical precedent for them. And I've argued in print that um, the uh, ability of the legislature to regulate the mode in which the right to bear arms for self-defense is exercised uh, is one of the, the more strongly attested parts of the case law. Uh, if you go through uh, the state courts and the, the treatises. And again, in the 19th century, that was exercised, that regulatory authority was exercised by prohibiting concealed carry and allowing open carry, which was viewed as more socially upright back then. Uh, you see that in, in many places. Um, I think it's perfectly acceptable for legislatures today to make either choice. Um, as long as it's a real choice, if you're going to ban concealed carry and allow open carry, and that's the only way to exercise a fundamental constitutional right, then it needs to be respected. And open carriers who would get harassed by the police uh, should be entitled to bring Section 1983 civil rights action. So that's one example. Um, if you look at the right, the Heller um, incorporated uh, one of the areas where it really did provide some guidance for lower courts is by adopting a common use test for what arms are protected by the Second Amendment. Um, one of the things that it said that was also prevalent in the, the state court tradition, uncontroversial, uh, the Second Amendment applies to, to small arms, to hand-carried weapons of defense, as the Oregon Supreme Court put it in a 1980 decision. Um, Heller's common use test looks at is a particular type of weapon in common use by the public at large uh, for legitimate purposes of which self-defense is one of them. Um, the court itself said uh, machine guns are dangerous and unusual weapons not commonly possessed by Americans. They're out of the Second Amendment. So there are some guidelines to go by. Um, the courts indicated that some what are called sensitive places or prohibited places laws are going to be upheld as constitutional. Um, even though there's a general right to bear arms, governments have some authority to designate particular places uh, where carry can be restricted or prohibited. So those are some examples. Uh, there's some doctrinal tools in Heller. We've got the practice of the states um, and it's even the states that strongly protect the right to arms, uh, and we have history. So we have, we have a lot of tools. Great. Uh, uh, same question to you, uh, Professor Bogus, uh, and I'll just add, uh, first, is there any uh, regulation of guns that you think is unconstitutional according to your version? 
Uh, and also, can you comment on the two recent important uh, cases here from Chicago, Judge Posner's 2012 decision striking down the Illinois law prohibiting both concealed and open carry in public, and there's a pending decision from Judge Easterbrook upholding uh, uh, a city ordinance that prohibits possession of assault weapons. Okay, well, I, I've read the Posner decision. I haven't read the Easterbrook decision. Um, but let, but let me just start with this as to what's constitutional and what's not constitutional. There's no coherent answer to this. There's no coherent answer to this. I mean, the coherent answer is you have a right to an armed militia. The Supreme Court just makes this stuff up about now, about you have a right to a handgun, you have a right to a handgun in a home. States can prohibit you, I mean, uh, you know, from uh, states or the federal government from taking a handgun into sensitive places. Yeah, I'm sure they do, they're, they're gonna put that one in there pretty quickly. They do not want you taking handguns into their place of work. <laughs> and now, what about somebody who's got a domestic relations order, uh, you know, uh, against them? They're engaged in domestic abuse and they have an order against them and there's a federal law that says uh, if you've got that order you can't have a gun. Is, is that a Second Amendment issue? Nobody knows because it's, le it's legislative decisions. That's what the Supreme Court and the courts are now making. And, um, you know, I had my research assistant take a look at the post-Heller decisions on uh, regulations uh, which are upheld and which are not upheld and the judges and who appointed them. And what do you think? It's not the, the, the split is not as pronounced as, as in the Supreme Court, but I would say the biggest indicator about how a judge is going to come out about whether a regulation is constitutional or unconstitutional under the Heller rubric is whether that judge was appointed by a Democratic or Republican president. Is this where we have come? Members of the Federalist Society, this is the conservative Roe versus Wade. Them's fighting words. Uh, here's a, a good question uh, um, about uh, Adam Winkler's book, Gunfight. Professor Winkler was nominated by the American Constitution Society to write about the Second Amendment for the interactive Constitution. His, uh, his colleague was Nelson Lund of George Mason. And the questioner asks, and I'll ask this to both of you, wasn't Adam Winkler correct in his book, Gunfight, that liberals ignore the long tradition of individual gun rights and conservatives ignore the long traditions of serious gun regulations? The, first of all, that's a good book. I recommend Winkler's book uh, if you're interested in the subject. Um, and it, it tells the story of the Heller litigation and some of the, some of the background history very well. Um, the, I, I, I agree with the first part more or less, in a more or less unqualified sense because, again, I, I think the, the terms of the debate, there's no question that there are a lot of people on the, you know, libertarian and conservative part of the um, academy and jurists and so on uh, who are originalists. Um, but it's telling something about the 
sort of state of constitutional law where, again, you have a case like Obergefell where, you know, the Supreme Court admitted there's, there's no basis in history or tradition, uh, no nation legalized same-sex marriage prior to 2000, and the court was willing to wade in on the basis of recent experience and its understanding of liberty and overturn uh, you know, the, the marriage laws of dozens of states that have been there for a long time. And my point is just this. If you accept that, then you need to listen to living constitution arguments, which are, you know, a cascade of living constitution arguments, not just since 2000, but from the earliest, you know, uh, generations following the, following the framing, uh, continuing today, Three states in the last three years have amended by wide legislative margins, followed by huge majorities of their electorate, um, have, have amended their state constitutions to strengthen the right to keep and bear arms for self-defense even more to provide for strict scrutiny, strict constitutional scrutiny of all gun regulations. Um, the, we talk about living constitutions. I would first make a distinction between the type of just minted living constitutionalism that we see in Obergefell, but that's out there. That is part of how the Supreme Court practices now, and I wanted to present the argument that a robust individual right to arms wins walking away under that approach. There's also tradition. Um, courts and, and judges and commentators were looking at, tr at history to flesh out the meaning of constitutional provisions before the kind of technical originalism that's gained a lot of influence today was even born. People like the second Justice Harlan. Uh, I've tried to argue under that approach. Uh, again, the individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense, that interpretation um, is strongly supported. And then also the founding era. So I, you know, I don't think if this is the way we're going to do con law going forward that uh, only one side of socially divisive issues um, can resort to more recent events following the framing. Indeed, I can't think of anything that might harm the legitimacy of the federal courts more, that would make them more seem like a ratchet that only works one way in divisive social issues. I only, and yeah, there you go. There are so many great questions, and we just have time for a few of them. So since I did ask you about uh, the individual rights question, let me note, uh, Professor Bogus, that two questioners want to know more about the Civil War history that we began to discuss. One says, Professor Bogus, how do you square your, your position with the 14th Amendment's legislative history, which seems clear that it sought to protect the rights of recently freed slaves to protect their families and property from being terrorized in places where there was little or no law enforcement? And another questioner asks, what right to keep and bear arms did ex-slaves possess after the Civil War? What laws were written to disarm them? Well, I'm not an expert in Reconstruction. So I don't know. Um, I can't give you a knowledgeable answer about uh, Reconstruction. Uh, but I would suggest that the arguments about Reconstruction are, to some large extent, a concession that you have to go to the 14th Amendment because you're losing on the second. Great. <laughs> Succinct answers are excellent. And here's a succinct question. Can Professor O'Shea speak to the Heller dicta, particularly felon prohibition? It's interesting. The, um, so one of the passages in the Heller opinion um, uh, 
that has actually been one of the more cited ones by lower courts, um, lists a number of restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms that the court describes as uh, presumptively constitutional. In practice, most courts are treating that as um, what I think the language naturally suggests it's a rebuttable presumption. In particular cases, these can violate the Constitution, but in general, this is a type of um, regulation that's likely, likely to be upheld. Some of them have uh, uh, impeccable historical precedents that go way back, like um, bans on concealed carry, again, where historically that was understand as the legislature can ban one mode of carry, but you have to be able to exercise the right. Um, sensitive places. There's actually a pretty long tradition in American courts of, of that kind of idea. And then there are some that are more recent. And general uh, felon disarmament statutes are not brand new, but relatively recent in the scope of American history. Um, there were some that began to, the, the federal government began to prohibit uh, certain kinds of felonies from obtaining firearms in the 1930s, and then the general current federal prohibition is part of the Gun Control Act of 1968, yet the court listed um, felon in possession prohibitions as presumptively constitutional. I, I think it's hard to read that other than, and, and there wasn't a originalist or even really a traditionalist justification presented for that. I, I think you have to look at it either as um, a recognition that some more recent history is relevant to the scope of regulation, or as an implicit conclusion that when you even when you do a form of heightened constitutional scrutiny and ask whether a regulation you know has a compelling or important state interest, whether it's adequately tailored, most felon in possession laws will tend to pass that, and that's not inconsistent, I think, with the way lower courts have actually been treating that dicta. Uh, great. Uh, I, I think uh, I asked you the first uh, question, so Professor Bogus, the last one to you. If militias were originally armed by their own weapons, how can the Second Amendment, originally interpreted, not protect individual ownership of guns? Doesn't a militia require individual ownership of guns? Well, um, it's true that it was traditional. Uh, for states to simply say, because they, the states were cheap, uh, we're not buying you a weapon, come with your own. Uh, and it's also true that the Second Amendment does give the right to the people. The question is, what's the dimension of that right? And a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, do we, do we interpret the amendment by just eliminating that. So it is a right of the people to keep and bear arms, bear arms in military term, despite what the Supreme Court says in Heller, uh, within the militia. And what was the militia? You read the entire Constitution, one of the principles of, of uh, constitutional construction, statutory or constitutional, you read the whole document. And the militia is a defined term in Article 1, Section 8. It's what Congress says it is. Congress gets to organize it. Congress gets to reorganize it. Congress gets to decide what it is. Today is the National Guard system. But whatever Congress gets to decide, whatever Congress does decide, 
What the Second Amendment properly guarantees is a, to a state, a minimum right to have an armed militia. Congress still gets to organize it. Congress still gets to decide what the arms are. But it's, a, it's, it's the right of the people within the militia, within the militia. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for closing statements. They will be three minutes each, and the first closing statement will be Professor O'Shea. Okay. The, um, let me see here. So I've tried to argue that at the founding, um, the English right to arms provided a model but also a point of contrast um, we have some of Madison's notes on the introduction of what would become the Bill of Rights, the amendments that would become the Bill of Rights. And they, he mentions, first of all, that they, they relate firstly to private rights. So there's even another piece of, of founding era evidence for what the Second Amendment was trying to do. And when he talked about the right to arms, uh, his notes, which are pretty fragmentary, suggest the main thing he was concerned about was that it was too limited. He talked about um, that, first of all, it was just a limit on the crown and not parliament, um, which concedes the point, but also the only reason for bringing that up is, unlike the American right to arms that Madison was introducing in the Second Amendment. Um, and he noted that it was limited to Protestants, suggesting that the intent was a right that was general. Um, I think the, the thing that's striking about this is the, um, the, the breadth of the, the breadth of the sources that's, that support the individual right to arms and the way in which even at the start, um, the aspects that the Heller court stressed were present. Uh, there's, I've got to give you one more passage from St. George Tucker, some people argue that the idea that there was a right to carry your arms for self-defense uh, is some sort of anachronism under the Second Amendment. But again, Tucker, the very earliest commentator, the closest to um, the founding, um, talked about the English law of treason in his wide-ranging treatise and then the American law of treason and noted that under the English common law, um, there was a rebuttable presumption that if there was a gathering of several men who were armed, who had weapons, a rebuttable presumption that this was motivated by treason against the king. And Tucker noted that it would not be appropriate for the bearing of weapons to give rise to a presumption like that in America, quote, where the right to bear arms is recognized and secured in the Constitution itself. And in the next sentence, um, Tucker said, in many parts of the United States, a man no more thinks of going out of his house on any occasion without his rifle or musket in his hand than a European fine gentleman without his sword by his side. That is personal use, that is hunting, self-defense, and if it wasn't clear enough, um, the founding era commentator brings in a European fine gentleman bringing his sword. Um, I think the striking thing about Heller is the fact that there were four dissenters, um, and, it is, and it is troubling, and in particular because there even is some support in the American tradition for there, there is a, a smaller line of authority that didn't think personal defense was central to the right, and those sources still, Joseph Story, the, the, the Tennessee Supreme Court, 
still conclude that there is a personal right to keep weapons. And again, in the be careful what you ask for, uh, their view was that the right was to own the ordinary military equipment and that there was an extremely categorical right to own uh, one, the Tennessee Supreme Court writing in a time when 15-round rifles were commercially available said the rifle of all descriptions is a constitutionally protected arm. So um, the, the founding case for the right to keep arms being individual, I think, is um, exceptional. Um, the founding era case for the right to carry arms for self-defense is very strong, and you don't have to be a 20th, 21st century living traditionalist. The great sweep of American tradition through the state courts, through the commentators, gathering more and more strength um, to where we see now with a supermajority of, of jurisdictions, uh, state constitutions becoming more and more explicit every year in recognizing this right, uh, shows you that a right to arrive. The, the signal failure of the lower federal courts in applying Heller has been the failure to, to strike down no issue or may issue restrictive concealed carry permitting laws. There are lots of questions that recognizing an individual right to bear arms isn't going to answer without a lot of tough legal analysis, but that is not one of them. Thank you so much, Professor O'Shea. Thank you. Uh, last word, three minutes, Professor Bogus. Well, um, I'm always puzzled when I hear how clear it is that the Second Amendment is about hunting and self-defense. How clear it is. Where does it say that in the Second Amendment? The, second, the, the, the framers told us what, they were, what it was about. Don't like it today. Ignore what they say. Is that fidelity to text? Is that textualism? You know, maybe it's best to conclude with, with some observations by Judge Harvey Wilkinson, uh, one of the most distinguished conservative jurists in the country, Fourth Circuit. He wrote this after Heller. Conservatives across the nation are celebrating I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bother to orally put in ellipses. So, it's, you know, I'm, it's all on one page, but I'm skipping some sentences because I don't have the whole, I have three minutes. <laughs> Conservatives across the nation are celebrating. I am, un, I am unable to join the, the jubilation. Heller represents a triumph for conservative lawyers, but it also represents a failure, the court's failure, to adhere to a conservative judicial methodology in reaching its decision. In fact, Heller encourages Americans to do what conservative jurists wanted for years, warned for years they should not do, bypass the ballot and seek to press their political agenda in the courts. Both decisions, he's talking about Heller and Roe versus Wade, share four major shortcomings an absence of a commitment to textualism, a willingness to embark on a complex endeavor that will require fine-tuning over many years of litigation, a failure to respect legislative judgments, and a rejection of the principles of federalism. And then he says something else pretty interesting. He says, well, one of the commentators who didn't really have an ax to grind, you know, said he, he sat down and he read Scalia's historical 
um, description in Heller, and he found it very persuasive. And then he read Stevens' historical description of dissent, and he found that equally persuasive. And Wilkinson writes, when a constitutional question is so close, when conventional interpretive methods do not begin to resolve the issue decisively, the tie, for many reasons, should go to the side of deference to the democratic process. And I suggest to you, in closing, as I have throughout, that what the Supreme Court has done has started to act like a legislature, and there is no way out as long as Heller stands. Judges will be forever balancing how much does this regulation burden this right? How compelling is the interest against it? Balancing, 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 the kind of balancing that legislatures ought to do. So I suggest to you, let's go back to the original view of the Second Amendment. Until 1990, there was not... Please conclude. I'm done? To finish your sentence. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Go ahead. Got to be a lot of semicolons. Okay. <laughs> Great. Go for it. I'm just kidding. Until 1990, there had not been a federal circuit court that interpreted the three early Supreme Court cases about the Second Amendment to say that, that it granted an individual right, or the Supreme Court ever said that. They always said it grants a collective right, it's connected to the militia, it's a militia right, and this is new. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Michael O'Shea and Carl Bogus. Thank you. Superbly high quality debate. You've heard the best arguments on both sides of this important constitutional question, and it is now time to cast our second vote. And you know how tech savvy I am, so let me give you the instructions one more time. The question is, do you agree with the resolution, the Second Amendment protects the individual's right to own and carry a gun? I want you to, uh, having approached this debate with an open mind, consider your view after having heard the best arguments. And if you have changed your mind, you may change your vote. The winner is the debater who has changed the most minds or the most votes. Uh, and here's how you vote. Once you've highlighted yes or no, hit send. You can start to vote right now. Once you've hit send, your answer will be displayed back to you. That means your response has been recorded. Uh, and then we have one final question, which will appear momentarily on your device. Yes or no, I now better understand the opposing point of view. And once you've highlighted your answer to that question, hit send. And once you've hit send, your answer will be displayed back to you. This means your response has been recorded. Our crack team, uh, which is just superb here, uh, we have our web strategist, Nicandro Iannacci, who will be tabulating our results. If there's a problem with your connection lost. Oh my goodness, every vote counts here at the National Constitution Center. Go see the vote counter back there, and he will ensure that it's included on the tally. And as Nicandro is tallying the votes, I will... Uh, must be from Florida. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Okay. <laughs> just as long as it's not Cook County, we're, we're in good shape. Technological um, hanging chad. I need to give special thanks to our phenomenal uh, supporters at the John Templeton Foundation. It was the visionary grant of $5.5 million from the John Templeton Foundation that made possible this glorious coalition of Freedom Advisory Board that allowed us to bring together the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, and that is enabling us to take our wonderful show on the road and to engage lovers of the Constitution across America with the best constitutional arguments. Uh, we talked about a few of our great debates at the beginning, and there have been uh, two since then. In uh, June, in New York City, former Attorney General Michael Mukasey and Deborah Pearlstein from Cardozo Law School <coughs> debated the constitutionality of the NSA's bulk data collection. And a month ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we uh, addressed the question, is the criminal justice system good for uh, business? And that was with former Attorney General Ed Meese and Mark Holden, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Koch Industries. There's an unusual alliance between uh, uh, libertarian conservatives and civil libertarian liberals about the question of overcriminalization, and that was very interestingly debated in Michigan. Our next debate is in March. It's in San Francisco, and this is an incredibly interesting case that I want you to check out if you haven't heard of it yet. It's called Vergara versus California, and it's a landmark case in which uh, a California court has held that the California Constitution's right of equal educational opportunity forbids uh, last-in, first-out teacher tenure rules because those lead to the worst teachers going to the most uh, disadvantaged kids. And it's a very interesting constitutional claim, and it will be debated by the two attorneys who are arguing the case, Jim Finberg and Josh Lipschitz, uh, Lipschitz. And we'll have videos from those debates always live streamed over our great town hall programs. Because I'm vamping, waiting for the results to come up, I'll also put in a plug for another great constitutional partnership that we have with Intelligence Squared. You've seen their wonderful debates, which are even more slickly produced than this one, if possible. And we're doing uh, it next week, actually, in New York City. The question is the one that the court will hear on December 9th in the Fisher case, basically does the Equal Protection Clause permit uh, affirmative action. And we've got a blockbuster series of debaters for that question. And then in June, at the National Constitution Center, we're going to talk about the uh, question, which is just uh, riveting the country right now, should the First Amendment include hate speech? And we'll have some great debaters on that question, too. I've been talking a lot about the uh, town hall and educational mission of the National Constitution Center. There are some wonderful partnerships that have made it possible for us to take this great interactive constitution across America, including recent partnerships with Khan Academy, which is doing wonderful educational videos about the interactive constitution, uniting the Federalist Society and American Constitution Society scholars and making them accessible uh, in ways that are lively and cutting edge. And also Google, which has just uh, created at the Constitution Center this phenomenal international constitution drafting lab. So that at the center and also online, last week we had constitution drafters from Syria and Liberia and the Ukraine come and engage in constitution drafting exercises using one final incredible part of the interactive constitution, which you've got to check out at constitutioncenter.org. You can click on any part of the U.S. Constitution and compare the spread of that liberty across the globe. So you can see, and since you've already voted, I'm, not, I'm just stating a fact, mm -hmm. I'm not uh, expressing an opinion. If you click on the Second Amendment, 
you'll see that only three countries light up that have uh, protection for the right to bear arms. One is the UK, which uh, Professor O'Shea noted in that English Bill of Rights protected the right of Protestants to bear arms. Uh, the second is Mexico, which imposes some heavy regulations. And the third is Iran, which has a Quranic exhortation for all citizens to take up arms in defense of the Quran, but still says that the guns can be uh, regulated if the uh, government uh, demands it. And now, Alejandro Iannacci, <laughs> just in time, brings up the card we've all been waiting for. And like the Oscars, I will put on my reading glasses and read the results. We have, for the proposition, uh, before the debate, 63 were for and 56 were against, uh, resulting in uh, a decline of uh, 1% and, uh, uh, sorry, of 10%, and against before 37% and after 44%, an increase in 7%. The against motion wins. Congratulations, Professor Bogus. But at the Constitution Center, there's always the central question, how many people better understand the arguments on the other side? 79% voted yes, only 21% voted no. Please thank uh, me in joining both of our debaters. Superb job. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nicandro Yanachi.